There's an argument people make in programming all the time that all programming languages are basically the same. You know, you add a feature here, you make a syntax change there, but essentially all programming languages are the same thing. Now, I have to say I disagree. I think the differences are where things start to get really interesting. But you have to concede there's a lot of overlap. Java and C Sharp have obvious similarities because of an obvious shared history. Uh, if, you, if you know Perl and I teach you Python, well, I'd hope you'd like Python, but I wouldn't expect it to completely blow your mind. In the great Venn diagram of programming languages, there's overlap. Of course there is. And the question this week is how much overlap and how far can you push it? I'm joined this week by Martin Johansson, and he's created a language slash tool that's trying to exploit the overlap between languages and build a kind of bridge so you could write something in Java and translate it into a similar language like C or a less similar language like PHP. He's got 13 languages he can bridge between so far, and it's a curious idea. I think it needs digging into. So let's get going, hear what he's got to say. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices, and today's voice is Martin Johansson. I'm joined today by Martin Johansson. Martin, how are things? Things are fine, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure, pleasure. While you're um, out there in the snow in Oslo, I believe. Yeah, it's snowy, snowy heavily outside right now, and it's quite beautiful. It's a beautiful place, Oslo, especially Very. in the winter. Although it's perishingly cold, I'm not sure I could cope with living there. Yeah, and it's it's at the end of a cold spell right now. It was 20 degrees Celsius for uh, a few weeks, so that's very cold. <laughs> Minus 20. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Minus yeah, 20 I, Celsius. I don't normally think that side of the zeros. <laughs> So the reason I've got you on is ambition, I think. You've been trying to solve a problem that I think everyone's tried to solve, but the way you're doing it really interests me. So let me put it this way. Everybody, like so many companies, so many people have said that they can solve the reusable software problem. And that's what you're kind of going at, but from a new angle, an angle I've not heard about before. Yeah, exactly. So, so this problem has interested me for a long time. Um and what started me out was that we know that um, we write these text files with code most often, and, and those don't uh, change. But what we see is that the co um, either the programs will stop working over time because we need up the software updates, the OS updates, uh, or a new language is trending and people are moving over to that language, which requires us to rewrite the code. And I, yeah. I, I'm, uh, this was very interesting to me, and I started, in, I started a serious project to investigate why this is. And uh, that's where I came up with a technology called ProgSpace and the theory behind it. Um, should I just dig into uh, what it is and what yeah, my thinking process Give me your was? general approach and then we can dive into the details. Yeah, so it is a programming language called ProgSpace and there are related tooling uh, that we can talk about later. Um, the approach I took when creating this language was very different from uh, what others do. Um, Instead of looking, instead of trying to build a new language with uh, strategies and mechanisms that um, that are new and that I thought was better than other languages, I took in a sense the opposite approach. I I I, I looked at languages and saw what do we actually agree on, <laughs> and it started out uh, as an experiment. Let's try to build a language 
with those things that those things that most people or most developers agree is a good idea. And we also see that when a, a language designer creates a new language, he will include these uh, mechanisms in the language uh, for, so, what for kind some of reason. What are we talking about? We are talking about very basic stuff here, like arrays, functions, uh, structures, uh, a, a character data type, a number data type, um, a Boolean data type. Okay, so we can agree on primitives before it all breaks down into flame wars. Exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. So it, what started out as an experiment uh, where I picked up those mechanisms, that, uh, those language constructs that, were, uh, that people agree on, I built it into a language and I started coding in it. Right. Uh, and what I found out is that it was very uh, strange to code on this language in the beginning. And I've heard that from other people who have developed it as well, that it is a bit weird in the beginning. But then once you get into the flow, uh, something in, uh, interesting happens. Uh, you will see that you understand the language 100% now. And you can just focus on the problem you're solving. But that sounds like you've solved the problem by just creating another language. Yeah. So uh, one interesting thing about this language is that it is it, it does not have its own syntax uh, or its own compiler. What you actually do instead is that you write code in, for example, Java. But you write in a subset of the language, uh, using only certain mechanisms. You're uh, using only certain language constructs. So what you write is just plain Java. You compile it with Java, static analysis with Java. Everything is Java. But then you can pass it through uh, an analyzer that I, I have made, a prog space analyzer, analyzer, and it will tell you whether it is valid prog space or not. Right. So prog space isn't its own language. It's a subset of Java. Yes, it's a subset of many languages, in fact. Um, at, this, at this point in time, I have uh, 13 languages that I've supported, support for. 13. Yeah, and actually, it, it, you could choose any of these language, languages to write ProgSpace in. At the current time, I only have Java as an input language. Uh, but as an output language, I have all the 13 languages. So you're saying I can say I can write a subset of Java, and if it's a valid subset of Java, you can take that in and spit it back out as 13 languages. Exactly, exactly. And this includes also the test cases, right? So you will. Uh, what is interesting here is that not only do you code uh, the code itself, you code the tests as well. So not only can you spit out in a new language, you can also automatically run the tests and see that the tests pass in all the languages. So it's actually quite interesting to see this in, a, in, in action where you will have a list of languages and it will just pass, 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 uh, going downwards. And you just made a change to Java, the Java version of it. Okay, let's hammer on this idea. So the first, if you're going from, give me, give me two or three of the languages. So Java, did you say Python is in yeah, there? Yeah, C++, Python, uh, Visual Basic. Uh, I can bring up the whole list if you want. No, no, it's okay. It's just enough to get me started on the question. JavaScript, of course, is an important one. TypeScript. JavaScript, JavaScript and TypeScript. Um, if you've got... How how small a subset of the language are we talking? How use, how much common ground are between those languages that you could usefully translate? Yeah, so uh, it's important to note here that I did not choose uh, the languages first and then selected the subset because there are languages outside that, that I can translate to. For example, Haskell. Um, I cannot translate to Haskell, um, uh, but but I can translate to those languages I mentioned. Um, and uh, what was your question again? Sorry. 
Well, I'm just, I'm wondering what, okay, let's put it this way. You're saying there's enough common ground between Java and Python and C++ that you can translate automatically between them, but not Haskell. So what's that boundary line where the common ground disappears? Uh, right. So I don't know exactly where the common ground disappears because what I did was to select those language, those language constructs that seem to be um, low in disagreement among developers. Right. Um, and then... And, and then I, I selected these constructs based on what you need when you program as well, right? Okay. Um, so therefore, I ended up with this uh, set of constructs that are very practical. It's very easy to work with them, but they're they are also common among uh, thirteen. Uh, there, there's actually a lot more, but I've only worked with the top thirteen languages. Okay. Uh, when I can did you, this, can you give me an example of something you thought was common and sort of failed to pass that test? Good question. Uh, yeah, <laughs> one one big one is the integer data type. Oh, really? Uh, that is actually um, that is actually a, a very interesting one because there is actually a lot of corner cases when it comes to integer math uh, that yeah. makes it difficult. Um, and, and this was one of the more difficult parts when I started making the language. But once I got into it and saw that um, we can we can use floating point numbers for most things, and we actually do that when we write JavaScript. Uh, there, it's uncontroversial, uh, or it's probably controversial, but uh, <laughs> but, it's the but but it's less un- less controversial. It's not like you have a choice. In yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, but but what happens is that when you get into it and start coding, you will see that you always know what will happen when you divide two numbers. Um, even for example, uh, in Python, if you divide by a negative number, it behaves differently than if you divide by a negative number in Java. So that's an example where they disagree. Right. Doesn't that mean then you can't have division by negative numbers in your language? But when you do floating point numbers, it's not a problem because then people agree what you should what should happen. Okay. So then we then we've got to get into what the practical size of this subset is i mean if i'm writing if if hypothetically i took javascript as my source language that limits the specificity i can have in my target language of java so that's right so, so now we get into into an interesting thing because uh, what i saw early on was that we can we can roughly divide uh, our programming tasks into two categories uh, one category i called computational and the mm. other, I there was no term for it, so I invented the term called infrastructural. But it basically means where you interact with hardware. For example, the screen, a disk, a keyboard, a, a clock device. Whenever you interact with any of these devices, I separated that out into a separate field. And then I focused only what you can do with uh, memory and your CPU running on a single thread. Because I also regard multi-threading as different... Um, interacting with different devices okay i can sort of so is this similar to the division between pure functions and side effects yes it's very related because uh, when i started working on this um, what you can do with just the cpu and memory what you write is actually pure functions uh, in my language you're allowed to change the input parameters so so i guess that doesn't fit the strict purity requirement but 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 it is the case that the, the a function will always return the same output for the same input. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and there is no global state uh, either. Um. So 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 it's always the case. So the functions are pure in the sense that it will always return the same output for the same input. 
Okay. So pure functions. Let me think of something that falls awkwardly outside of that, see if I can challenge you on this. Here's something that some languages absolutely agree is fundamental and some agree is the opposite. Um, Memory management. How do you bridge the gap between a memory managed language like Java, uh, sorry, and and a manage-it-yourself language like C++? That's a very good question. Um, And what what I decided to do is to to have two calls. You have uh, allocation calls, where I use the native one. So in Java, I use new. Uh, but for deallocation, um, what you do is that you create a function um, um, with a special name called delete. Um, and in Java, it's empty. Nothing happens. Uh, but if, when you translate it to C++, it will do um, a, an actual delete operation in C++. Okay. Uh, so, it, so the short answer is there is manual memory management. But when you run it in a garbage-collected language, it will garbage-collect. Okay. And if I'm writing uh, from Java, um, a garbage-collected language, you are going to automate, when you translate it to C++, you will take care of the manual memory management primitives. Exactly. So you have, in a sense, when you write the code, you have to do manual memory management. But when you run it in a garbage-collected language, then you don't, then, then the garbage collector will take care of it. Okay. Crikey. But the uh, but the purity of the language makes this uh, less of a difficult task, actually. So, give me an example of something useful you can write in this subset. What are the, what are the practical day to day limitations that it imposes on you? Yeah. So, in this subset of the language, you can write a, a lot of libraries uh, related to uh, doing computations. Um, uh, and I'm um, we we haven't talked yet about the library of functions, right? The libraries of um, the online library of uh, functions. Mm, we need to get into that. Yeah. So uh, I have an I have a large online library of uh, of, li- of uh, code written in this way, uh, and there we can see what kind of uh, libraries it is. Should I just have a glance at it and give you a few highlights? Yeah, give me an example. So uh, a couple of good examples um, that I'm using um, in in a project I'm working on is um, um, a JSON serializer and deserializer. Okay. That's yeah. one example. I can another see how example that would be is global. Yeah. Another example is um, date libraries dealing with dates, all kind of calculations with dates. That, that that's actually a huge one. Yeah, the hard part of that is not so much programming as the crazy rules that the planet has. Exactly. So yeah. here you can capture those rules in a language, uh, which you can then translate to all the languages you want, right? So that you can have the same uh, date functionality. Okay, so you, are you saying that you've written a new date library? And exactly. Translated, or, so you didn't go to an existing Java date library and see if that was translatable? Exactly, but I, I did not, of course, invent all the algorithms. Uh, I look up algorithms. I take inspiration from open source projects that have an open license, mind you. <laughs> yeah. I always make sure they have. So, so I, 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 make, I, I take uh, existing libraries and I convert the code to prog-based code, which means uh, removing a few language constructs here and there. And um, actually, some of the functions get, get, get more clear when I do this because I reduce the amount of features in the language I use. And sometimes this pops up interesting new um, uh, questions about how the implementation works. Give me an example. Uh, yeah, a big example is error handling. Okay. I think that's the major one I encounter. Many yeah. languages rely on exceptions mm-hmm. um, as an error handling mechanism. 
And in product space, you don't have exceptions other than um, a certain kind of exception where you overflow an array. If you divide by zero, there are certain hard exceptions. But for ordinary control flow, you don't have exceptions. What do you have uh, instead? So what we have instead is you return uh, if a function can't fail because the input is invalid. Um, uh, I return a boolean say, saying that the function failed. Okay. And that is always that, that is always very interesting because when I then start to look into the implementation, I will see, ah, oh, there are all these failure cases. And what you'll see that many failure cases are not handled. And then you'll get this generic null pointer exception, for example. That's a very common one if you haven't thought about yeah. all the errors. I will add additional checking. And what you will get in the end is actually a library that either succeeds at what it's supposed to do, or it fails with the status of false. And I often also include an error message saying why it failed. So you, my yeah. So if I'm writing some Java in this, does that mean I have to remove my exceptions, or does exactly. it mean that you'll translate my exceptions into? No, you, you actually way? you actually need to remove the exceptions. That's true. That's true, and go over to this uh, error handling by return value instead. Okay, so it's trying to get the idea of what it would be like as a Java programmer to convert my code because it's not going to be entirely idiomatic Java then. No, it's definitely not going to be idiomatic Java, that's for sure. <laughs> What's interesting, actually, is let's say you write some code in this and then you translate it to C++. It will not be idiomatic C++ either. Right. Actually, you will get idiomatic prog space in Java and in C++. The code will look very similar. Because one thing I haven't mentioned to you is that the translation isn't one way. It's a one-to-one -one translation. So that means that the code you wrote will look almost exactly the same in Java, in C++ or in TypeScript as the one you wrote. So in some future, I could take the Java file, spit out a C++ file, reparse that, spit out a Python file, spit out a Visual Basic file, and go for lunch. Exactly, exactly. Right. So is, is your hope here, then, that eventually, I'm thinking probably companies that have a large number of different languages like Netflix has lots of languages, doesn't have any hope of recoalescing those into a few. Are you hoping they would convert their core libraries? Say, that's a good question. Uh, one thing I um, one thing I hope to do is that uh, as uh, more and more libraries ac accumulate here, I hope they will have longevity. Mm. Um, and what I hope is that over time, um, since we do not have to rewrite the libraries in a new language. If a new language comes along, I'll write an output for that language um, so that it's fully supported. And what I hope is that as the library grows, uh, we get a library that anyone in the world can reuse, uh, not only throughout the world, but also over time, so they can reuse it also in 50 years or 100 years. Right. Uh, so I hope that this, even though the language itself might look a bit familiar, unfamiliar and be a bit controversial, I think the longevity will prove itself in that we get more and more code that is of higher and higher quality, and that that will encourage um, uh, reuse and they encourage um, people to use it. Okay, I can see that. So is it fair to say your idea here is rather than trying to find a language to rule them all, you're trying to find a style to rule them all? In a sense, yes, yes. Or mm -hmm. to at least harvest what we do agree on now. Um, so, so it's a, instead of creating another faction or another dialect, I, I try to do the opposite, like 
this is the core in the sense, the core on what we agree on. Let's see what we can do. And what I found was that we can actually do a lot of coding uh, in this language, and it works very well. Okay. There are two directions I want to take this in. Let's go into the library space first. So you've been talking about progs based the language. When you think about it, are you are you really talking about progs based the spec or the set of capabilities or some internal representation? So um, should I mention the library, uh, the online library? Yeah, yeah. Get, yeah. So um, I, in in relation to building the language, I also set up an online library. And this is an immutable online library of Colt. So when you publish a release version into this library, um, it cannot change in the future. So and and the library is known by its name. It also has a namespace, which is uh, and I have two namespaces actually. I have an organizational namespace where you put your organization, for example, no uh, company. Um, or com company, uh, this would be in the organizational namespace. But yeah. you can also have uh, what I call a scientific namespace. Uh, so if if you if you created a library for doing network, um, op- let's say computation related to networking, hmm. you would put that into the scientific namespace: computer science, networking, and then addressing, for example. Okay, this is kind of a side question, but which one do I then import? Yeah, you, you can choose both. Uh, at the moment, I only have support for the organizational one, but the scientific one will come very shortly. Okay. Um, and you can choose which to import. So is that so, yeah. library, is that storing Java code or what's yeah, it, canonical it is, representation? It is storing the uh, AST, uh, the abstract syntax tree, um, of what is valid uh, prog space code. Right. Yeah. Right. The, so we've got, this is reminding me a bit of Unison. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and Unison is quite similar in this respect. Uh, but um, Unison uh, recognizes uh, functions by their hash. Here, um, uh, a library is known by its uh, namespace, uh, its name, and its version. Okay. So it's those three. And then, in addition, you have a function name, which identifies a function in that library. Okay. So if I published, if I attempted to publish a slightly different source tree to the same version number, what would happen? Then you would get a message saying that that version already exists in the library. Okay. okay. And one important thing here is that you also you, you bundle with this a file where you describe the dependencies of your library. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, those dependencies, if you publish a release version, can only be released dependencies. And this ensures that the, the libraries that are published are always going to stay there as they were. And you, uh, this uh, this um, this whole database is actually uh, available online. So I've created this uh, domain where you can go, and then you can browse all the libraries, all the versions, all the functions. You can see the source code in all the languages because I just have a drop down. You select an, another language; it will translate it immediately to that language. Okay. So when I'm browsing the source code, there is no source code. You're generating my chosen flavor on the fly. Yes. <laughs> And interestingly, uh, what I can do is that not only can I do this, I can also generate um, an applet, if you want, or a, or a form where you can run the function there and then. Because you can translate into JavaScript. Exactly. So you can run, can run the run function the right there and then in your browser. So when you, if you upload code to this online repository, that website will be generated uh, immediately for that uh, function. Yeah. 
you can also have private libraries, but but then you, you, that, that's a separate part. Yeah. Uh, my main focus here is the online open source MIT license uh, source code. Okay. And then there's Out of curiosity, when I download a library to my local machine, do I download the AST and store that, or do you translate it for me and I download my favorite language? I could actually put a download link for the AST, but um, just right now I just have download links for each language. And so for every a... library, you can go uh, download and you will get all the languages and different flavors of each language also, uh, different versions of a language, and download the source code. And you will get not only the source code of the library, but also all the dependencies bundled into one. So you've had to write an AST pretty printer for all 13 languages. That's exactly right there. <laughs> okay, that must have taken some work in itself. I... Writing the libraries and doing the research was the hardest part. Uh, writing the uh, writing the language uh, part of it was not that difficult. So, okay, okay. Yeah. So then we need to talk about what you call the infrastructure side of things, because at the moment it sounds like it's going to work for a, just a set of pure libraries. Exactly. So, um, what I when I uh, when I was happy with the part uh, doing pure functions, I started looking into how how should we deal with um, uh, dealing with deal with uh, devices of all different kinds. Mm. And what I found was that um, I took inspiration from the capabilities uh, view of uh, like when you have capabilities uh, in a function. Mm. And let's say you want to interact with a with a disk. Then yeah. you will pass um, a, um, a structure to your function called disk. And then I created three operations on that disk. Um, read and write, and also get the size of the disk. Uh, these functions are, when you program in ProgSpace, pure. So they are mocks of, that, um, uh, of the disk. So you program it in completely deterministically, completely pure, and you develop and you test and you see that everything is good. Now you're ready to deploy this interacting with an actual disk. What you would do then is to uh, to delete your the, the library called disk, which you have imported, and replace it with, for example, um, a file disk handler that will do these operations on a file on your computer. So then it will treat that file as a disk. Okay, so you're enforcing, I can't do side effects, I have to program against an interface. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I've, I've selected um, many devices, but um, let's see. Um, I've selected six main devices that, mm -hmm. I, that, that covers most of the productive things you uh, want to do. Give me the six, give me the list. Yeah, so um, there's a disk. That is on a, yeah, there's a yeah. disk, and then there's a screen, putting stuff on the screen. Okay. A, a clock device, audio device for outputting audio. Mm -hmm. And then there are two where I needed to invent a name because I, I, there was no standard name for them. Uh, and I cho chose to call one a processing unit, which basically means a thread. It's memory. It's a single thread, memory and CPU. Okay. And then a processing unit controller is what I call the, the last one. This is where you want to start or stop a thread. Okay, so it's a bit like a thread pool. In, in a sense, yeah, because the processing unit controller will have, uh, let's say, six uh, processing units you can control, and you can ask any of them to stop or start, or you can change the program that is running on them. 
And this you would use to create a scheduler, for example. Uh, or right. if you wanted to split one uh, thread into multiple threads to do... Um, it's a bit like a supervisor then. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Missing from that list quite notably is network. Yeah, this is a very good question because um, I have abstracted the idea of a network and combined it with the multitasking. So when you write okay. proxy-based code, it's always running in a single thread. Mm-hmm. And if you want to run two threads, either on one computer or on two separate computers, the only device you interact with is the processing unit device. So you will pass a processing unit device to your function. And then you have uh, yeah, you have a number of calls. But basically, if you're interacting with the, this processing unit as a client, you can send, you can receive, and you can also check if there's a message. Okay. But so... you can also interact with this processing unit as a server. And right. then you would have, uh, then I would have server receive and server send, and also there check if there's a message available. So if I spin out a local thread or I treat someone else's web server as a thread, it looks the same. Exactly, exactly. It only depends on how what kind of driver you use for the processing unit. On the same computer, you could typically have a shared memory pool. That would be the most efficient way uh, to do um, multi-threading on a single computer. But the, the code would be exactly the same if you wanted to interact with another computer. Then you will then you would replace it with a network call, typically a TCP call, for example. So does that does that get tricky when you're doing things like serialization? How does that play out? Um, I'm uncertain what you mean. Because I mean, most threads you're just sending data to directly. Sometimes you're even sharing a pointer in memory. Whereas now you've got to worry about writing bytes to the network. You've got to do yeah. more serialization work to make those calls. Yeah, you're right. So that, that, that's a fair drawback, I think. Um, um, but but here, you can, here you can have a unified view of whether you work on a single computer or multiple computers. So what's actually happening under the hood? Are you serializing every call, whether it's local or remote? So the calls you have against the processing unit um, is send, uh, an array of bytes and receive an array of bytes. So it's up to the uh, person who uh, makes the um, okay. code that decides how to serialize it. But but there is actually a, a way to optimize code in ProxySpace that we can talk about. I don't know if you want to talk about that now or later. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Okay. So we, we actually get a huge benefit from the fact that the, these functions are pure and that there's no global state. This means that we can actually replace individual functions with a more efficient call. So, right. it, it, so if you wanted to pass the pointer directly, you, you could instead you, you could write you could write a more high level call and then replace that with a driver doing that actual call. Um, Take me through that. Um, so. Before we dig into that, maybe we can talk about file systems just to have a, okay, sure. an, an example. Yeah. Yeah, so that makes it. Mo- most people think about the file system as interacting with a disk. Yeah. But the fact is that uh, in ProgSpace, uh, if you wanted to interact with a file system, it would be a processing unit. Okay. And the reason is that a file system is actually a lot of logic that needs to be done in order to figure out how to talk to the actual disk. Yeah. Um, so, if you had if you had a file system called uh, called called read file, for example, th- 
that would be an API call to a program implementing a file system. But you could actually, if you wanted to, uh, replace the function read file with a more efficient one, especially tuned for like Linux or Windows. Mm-hmm. And since you have, since functions give the same output for the um, same inputs, this would actually work. It would be easy because why you can't in C, for example, or C++, you can't just replace a function because you don't know the effects of uh, what it will do. But here, since you have this very limited, very tight, tightly focused language, you can start to do these kind of things more naturally. Okay. Why not unify... Why not unify disks as though they were threads as well? Because you just... A file system, you send stuff to it, you get stuff back from it. That looks... If you're going that abstract, it looks a lot like a network call or a thread call. It does, but a file system usually it contains other things like a file name. It contains uh, access rights. Um, you can also get error cases like the disk is uh, like there's no more um, uh, specializing the error. Yeah, so so, so it yeah. is a considerably larger interface, uh, a file interface. Okay, so it could be a subset, but you've just chosen to make that more fully featured. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, I can see that. So, um, so yeah, uh, what, what I find very nice about this is that you have a unified view of multi-processing on a single computer and over many computers. Yeah. So this means that it's, it is quite natural now to create uh, a distributed program running on many computers. To what degree have you done that out in the wild? Uh, I've done that. I, I've, I started developing these libraries a year ago, and uh, they're expanding quite rapidly now. Uh, so I now have a number of these kind of modules building blocks for this kind of distributed systems. Should I mention some of these building blocks? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, go for it. They are nicely categorized into these uh, scientific namespaces that I mentioned for you. Uh, but let's see. Um, so we have a load balancer, for example. Um, okay. That is a program that um, where you take a number of clients and a number of servers, and it deals with the load balancing in between. Right, And that can be applied either you want to load balance across servers, or if you want to load balance locally on your computer, or you want to load balance partially on your computer and partially on another computer. It only depends on what uh, what kind of um, processing unit drivers you set up when you run it. So and this becomes... Be, yeah. I'd be able to expect to run a load balancer with a number of different servers behind it, and one of them is running the code in Python, and the other one's running on a JVM, and the other one's running yeah. on raw binary, what's it, ELF. Yeah, that would be natural to do here, yeah. yeah. That was something that would be natural to do using the setup. But the nice thing about this is that you can actually, you can start work as an architect. You can think of, okay, let's now consider what kind of modules I want in my system. Um, I, I, want, I want to have like several disks, and then I want to have a RAID component that does the RAID logic. And then I want to have a cache. So you put a cache module. I also have that in the library, a cache module, mm. uh, a RAID module. And then um, I want to have my file system. And then I want to have uh, another layer of cache on top. Or you can just remove the caches and have a simple infrastructure. So you can start doing this um, kind of architecture where you just select the components you want and build them and run them. And um, because the interfaces here are so simple, you can also run it on a bare metal server if you like. And I've been working together with the bare metal OS to 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 get the drivers going for a bare metal deployment. Okay, what state's that in? 
it's in a good set where uh, we are working on the networking uh, components. That's the only part that is missing. But interprocess communication, disk access, all this kind of very natural on the bare metal environment. But but you don't need to run this on a bare metal environment. You can run it on Linux. Um, and then you just use the Linux drivers instead. You use the Linux driver for TCP communication, the Linux driver for disk access. So, so this kind of working, I have this kind of architecture, I have, I have uh, coined a term called no OS. Right, because yeah. you you're not dependent on any specific OS uh, to to build and run these components. Okay, that means that you have are very uh, good control over what is happening. So, I've got a chance then of expecting to run some code on the JVM and on some embedded hardware and on AWS lambdas potentially. Yeah, that should be possible. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we need to talk about how far along this project is. Is anyone using it in production? So um, I have not done a lot of marketing on this project. This project has been going since 2018. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have been steadily building up. uh, So the language stabilized around 2019. And I have started uh, building, uh, I've built libraries over many years. And then the last two years, I finalized this capability model. And I started building capability, uh, these kind of drivers and infrastructural components. So, uh, like in in the fall, I, I consider now now the project is pretty complete. Now I want to do some marketing and get this out there. So I'm very early, but uh, I run this company um, uh, here. I'm in the office now, uh, which is a cloud provider company in Norway, mm. and we have been using this since about 2019. We have been using many of the components I talk about in production. Okay, for what kind of tasks? Uh, for many kind of tasks, I mentioned some of them earlier. Um, all kind of date uh, calculations. Uh, we have serialization using JSON and Base64. We are facing it in now as a static web server. Okay. Um, because we have all the components we need to do static web ser- uh, serving. Uh, we'll be facing in uh, load balancing um, shortly. And we'll also be facing in uh, kind of RAID operations uh, and stuff like that. Um, and we're also facing in database uh, logic as well. So it is slowly facing in many components. Uh, database, is that going to be written in Progspace or is yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll okay. have libraries for different database operations. Uh, the one set up at this point is a key value database. Okay. Uh, but the relational database is, uh, is also in the works. If I wanted to talk to Postgres, for example, what's going to happen there? Yeah, so if you want to interact with a, a, uh, some kind of software that is not written in Progspace, uh, what you would need is an adapter. Uh, so you, you would need an adapter that takes, for example, an, S, uh, an SQL request as text and then passes it on, it on to um, Postgres. So that's how you would actually interact with a system like that. You would regard it as a processing unit uh, inside Progspace. Okay, so... I would then presumably need to manually write that adapter in every target language. That's on me. Um, no, I don't think you would need that. Maybe parts of it, but 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 the, the main parts of it you can do in Progspace, and then maybe a, a tiny part of it needs to be done in the particular language. Okay, what about external libraries, though? So like, if I'm writing in C, I'm going to bind to the lib Postgres client, can't remember the exact name. That's not going to work in Java land. Yeah, exactly. So um, 
this whole basic setup that I've been talking about only works if you're doing everything in prog space, right? Yeah. Um, so, so that is the limitation, absolutely. Uh, but, but my 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 hope is that the, the benefits of this language um, means that we will get if we build certain components using this language, we will get certain features, and maybe some parts are outside. But my hope is that we can get a database of libraries that are very solid that can be used in any, any language. And if if you have some task that is not suited for that, then sure, go ahead. One benefit here is that you can only Im- you can Im- import a prog space library into your project, and it doesn't uh, influence any other part of your uh, system, right? Because it's just yeah. more Java or whatever language. Yeah, exactly, I like. exactly. So it's very easy to reuse the components as they are in any project. So if you want to use prog space libraries in your project, it, it doesn't limit the project. It's just a Java file that sits there and does its thing. And you can do whatever you want with the rest of your project, of course. Yeah. But if I happen to want the same library in another language I'm using, I can expect exactly the same behavior. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So hopefully th- okay. th- that is a huge benefit. And if you want to write, as I said, infrastructural components as well and have that as a part of your system, that works as well. Yeah. But of course, you're entirely, this doesn't dictate how you do all your right? so. Yeah. So out of curiosity, when you phase in your load balancer to production, Presumably, your target language isn't going to be Visual Basic. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> Which one will you pick? I I have a tendency to to run most of my stuff on Java, on the JVM. Um, but uh, if I if I wanted to have more speed, for example, I would put it in C. So some of the components are in C just to get that additional speed. That would be really interesting to benchmark, given that you're pretty confident it's exactly the same code. Yeah. And um, we haven't talked about this yet, but we. Um, uh, but one hope I have with this library is that is that they will gr- they will improve in quality over time, because what I try to do is to have libraries with a very a, a single thing that they do and then do it well, and then I've created this process where I will hopefully evolve this library into a very robust and high quality component. Mm. And my idea is that I start with cr- uh, creating a component. Then I put it into low importance production work to like check what the quality is. Right. Then I put it into more serious production workloads. And when it's been there for us some time without uh, giving any error, any unexpected behavior, any errors, it works as it intends. Then I put it up on progspace.com on what I call a bug bounty program. Right. I have seen this. You've got your most confident libraries. You're putting your money where your mouth is. Yeah. Yeah. So because when I've written a library, I see it work in production. It has done so for some time. Now I put it up on my uh, and say that you will get, for example, $200, $100 for finding a single bug in this library. Um, And and you might say that's a bit overconfident, but... I challenge anyone viewing this to go and see if they can find bugs. You can actually run the code just in your browser. Uh, there are links you can run. You can try any out input you want. You can analyze the code with your favorite fuzzer. And if you find a bug, great, because then we don't have that bug in production anymore. So that would be absolutely fantastic. And I, that's absolutely worth the money. And um, if, yeah. uh, if a bug isn't found over some time, I will raise uh, the reward. Okay. So I, what like- I... What, yeah. That's just any bug for the library, no matter how large or small. Yeah, exactly. As I say in the bug bounty program, if you can find a valid input that gives the unexpected output, that's your reward. What if 
does that still count if I only find it in a corner case in Visual Basic? No. So the the, the bug about the program explicitly say that it has to be. Uh, yeah, if if you find a bug in specifically for Visual Basic, that that's a more internal error in our Progspace system. Um, so we don't have a bug bounty yet for that, but that, that would be an interesting separate uh, thing, actually. But as of yeah. now, it, it has to be uh, when you run the code in, in the uh, core sense. Um, okay. It, has, it, it would have to be present in multiple languages, right? We have yeah. a bug in the library and not in the writer itself. Yeah, that makes sense. I could see uh, it's kind of um, a next order of next order of magnitude abstraction. To yep. test the entire language translator rather than the library, but but okay, I think I think fair. I think you made a very good point that uh, if there is a bug in the writer, that that's also quite serious. So 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 that is something actually I actually could put up as a bug bounty as well. That's a good that idea. It's a separate bounty. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Good idea. Okay, um, so in that case, if someone wants to get started trying this, if I fancy kicking the tires on a Java to Visual Basic to Python translator. Where do I yeah, begin? so I have a website, progspace.com, and you can go there and you can um, download the tool. It's called Progspace. You can run it on the command line. Uh, because this is an online library where we have the code, uh, the tool uh, interacts with the online library. Uh, so therefore, you need an account, but the, an account is free. And as long as you just upload open source project to the library, contribute with that, everything is free. You can uh, and, and if you want to use Progspace libraries in your um, system, you can also use the Progspace tool to import the dependencies. And you can do that in any lang- in all the languages we support. And if there okay. is, if, if you have a language that you would want to import um, the code in, just let me know and I'll see if I can make a writer for that language. Okay. So if, I'm, if I then go away and write some Java and I decide I want to make it into Python, do I have to upload it to your library server and then re-download the Python? Uh, no, because the tool has a, has a command called convert. Okay. And then it will convert the code. So I can you. run it all locally? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that makes it very interesting for like little local experiments on language-to-language translation. Yeah, yeah, it does, it does. And you can also go on the, uh, on the online repository and do the drop-down menu. And um, the, the, this uh, online library is also highly interactive with that you can click on a function and you will get to go to that function. And you can try to translate that as well. Cool. Okay, last question then. What, what's the most exotic language I can translate to? <laughs> Good question. Let's see what the list is. Uh, uh, yeah, maybe the most exotic language is uh, VBA. VBA. Yeah, v- <laughs> that was a, a pretty exotic one. But it's an interesting one, actually, because it's used in a lot of businesses. Yeah, uh, they, 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 they don't brag about it, but it's actually out there. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that being surprisingly popular. To you can write VBA without actually writing VBA. Yeah, so here you can hire, you can set your developer to create a large library. He can test it locally uh, using his favorite Java ID, and when he's uh, happy with it, uh, he can upload it to the library and download it as a VBA uh, library. <laughs> okay. I could see that being a little niche corner of your user base. One yeah, day. yeah. But your question was, what was the most exotic? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that though because that's it is exotic. But you're right; it's still desperately used. <laughs> cool. Okay, I, I think I have to go away and play with this. I'm going to give it a try and see uh, see how far it goes in translating, in being like a babel fish of programming languages. Martin, thank you very much for talking to me. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Have a nice day. Thank you, Martin. You know, if I were Martin's marketing department, I'd say that last bit might be the best argument for adoption. It's quite compelling. Tell people you can write the language you like, but emit the language you don't. We all have feelings that way, don't we? I don't know. It's an idea that needs some battle testing, though. I would need to kick the tyres before I formed an opinion. Let me know what you think in the comments. Uh, If you think it's a good idea, go and check out progspace.com. Link in the show notes, as always. If you think it's a bad idea, you should probably go and check out the bug bounty. Because if you're right, then that's free money. And if Martin's right, it's a free education. You're a winner either way, right? Before you go and do that, please take a moment for some feedback. If you liked this episode, click like or rate or whatever buttons your app has. If you know someone else who might have liked it, please hit the share button and send it to them. And make sure you're subscribed because we'll be back with another episode next week, of course. Until then, I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Martin Johansson. Thanks for listening. 